All right, family. Well, good afternoon once again, church family and friends. Uh, it's a joy to, to be together this afternoon to, to worship the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's good to be together once again on this Lord's Day uh, to make much of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. We could be anywhere else right now, but God saw fit to show his mercy and grant us grace that we could be here to, to worship Jesus together. So if you've been with us, you know that we've been uh, in the gospel of Mark, uh, and we're planning to start a new series on the church. Uh, but as I've mentioned in previous weeks, uh, I sensed from the Lord that we needed to pivot a bit, that we needed to, that the Lord edited my plans, uh, which I'm happy for him to do. And I hope we all are happy for him to do when he chooses to and deems best, uh, but that he edited my plans and that we are now going to be spending some time walking through the book of First Peter. Okay. And so as a year and six month old church, we've experienced a lot of suffering. We've experienced a lot of suffering, trials, challenges and joys within our body. The book of First Peter has many themes written in the book. But one of the main themes, one of the overarching themes is suffering. And it's in that that Peter wrote to Christians who were scattered, who were displaced and suffering. To remind them of their hope they have in the Savior. So he wrote to to Christians who were scattered and suffering to remind them of the the hope that they have in the Lord Jesus. And during this series, I hope to do the same. I hope to do the same to remind us of the hope that we have in our Savior. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. The book of first Peter in your Bibles will be looking at chapter one, verses one through two. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, that's OK. Feel free to use the table of contents to, to find where we are. And if you need a Bible, uh, just let us know and we would gladly give you a Bible. Let us know if you need one. Just raise your hand and we'll give one to you. All right, everybody's good. All right, so book of First Peter, let me pray one more time and then we'll dive in. Oh God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that uh, you would help us now as we come to it, uh, that we would hear your word and obey your word. So God, would you, as I pray all the time, would you allow your word to do the work in all of our hearts in every way that you see fit? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 1, and it should be on the screen. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So I want to go ahead and say off gate that this might be a little longer of a sermon than normal. Okay. In that it is the introduction to the book. And so I'm going to be covering a lot of groundwork here uh, in just these two verses. I just wanted to go ahead and give a heads up in advance. So if anybody starts to look at me with that side eye, uh, I'll know to rush through. I'll know to rush through uh, these notes a little, a little quicker. It may skip some stuff. I'm just playing. But, but yeah, just letting you know in advance. And so if you are taking notes, uh, I just have two points for you. Two points for you this afternoon. And here they are, and they should pop up on the screen. But number one, from. From. That's number one. And then number two. Which is two, <laughs> two, T-O, two. And then there'll be some sub points as you'll see there on the screen as well that we'll walk through. So let's, let's look at the first point. So number one, look back with me at verse one. A, it says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is the introduction to the letter. All right. Uh, there wasn't any social media or uh, email or text. Or calling going back on going back on those days in biblical days. There wasn't any of that. 
Their form of communication was written letters and oral, right? As there was a lot of teaching and talking uh, surrounding that, but this was written communication. And this is a typical greeting in a letter, right? In a greeting in a letter, you learn who the letter is from and you learn who the letter is going to, right? And so that's what we're going to dig into this this afternoon. Uh, So in verse one, we learn that the author of this letter is Peter. It is Peter. So the question is, who is Peter? Who is Peter? What do we know from the Bible about Peter? Well, we know this. Well, a little more background, and then we'll dive into a little bit more. Peter wrote this letter in Rome around AD 64 during the reign of an evil emperor named Nero who persecuted the saints. Right. So as we're going to walk through and see, as I've already mentioned, but we're going to we're going to walk through and see that this letter is written to Christians who are suffering, uh, written to written to Christians who are suffering and uh, suffering uh, in a lot of ways. And one being persecution by this evil emperor. Uh, that has been persecuting the church, trying to stamp out the church, trying to kill out the church, right? A little bit more about Peter is that Peter was born Simon Barjona, which means Simon, son of John. We see that in John 142. And I'm going to be referencing some scriptures. So if you want to write some of these scriptures down and check them out, I encourage you to uh, on your own time. But I'm going to be referencing a lot of scripture. We're going to look at some of the scriptures. Uh, but yeah, so you, you learned this in John 142. And that Jesus gave him the name Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, Cephas and Peter mean rock in Aramaic and Greek. And so these are languages uh, that the Bible was written in. This is important, as you may recall, Jesus saying he is building his church on the rock, which is Peter. Right. Listen to Matthew 16, 18 says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell should not prevail against it. We learned that Peter's job was a fisherman. As we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, we've been seeing that earlier on in the Gospel of Mark. But, but that Jesus calls him to be a fisher of people. So he, his profession was a fisherman, but that Jesus calls him to be a fisher of people. Right. Listen to Mark 1, 16 through 18. It says, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. He being Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Peter was married. And we know that based on Jesus healing his mother-in-law in Mark 1, 30 to 31. So, so Peter was married. The apostle Peter was married. Right. Mark 1, 30 to 31. It says now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Peter, as we see here, introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This means as our church body has studied before that Peter was an apostle, an apostle in the unique sense of the meaning of that title. Right. He was called by Jesus. And so you think about Luke 6, 13 through 14. He spent time with Jesus. So Peter was with Jesus. And was a witness to his resurrection. He saw the Lord Jesus raised from the dead, resurrected. Acts 1, 21 through 22. So based on this, as we've looked at before, based on this criteria, there are no modern day capital A apostles like in the biblical times. But the word apostle means sent one. So in this sense that in this sense of the meaning of the word, every Christian is a sent one. We've been all called to go. So we've been sent by God, but not in the unique sense like Peter and the rest of the apostles. The unique sense and all of the things that came with that. Not in that sense. But a lot of us I know may know Peter famously, right, for confessing that Jesus is the Christ in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, only to be rebuked by Jesus in the next scene as he tried to rebuke Jesus for telling the disciples that he would die and be raised from the dead, right? So Peter is famously known for that, that he, yeah, he confessed 
Jesus, and he got that right, but then he got it wrong in the next scene where he tried to rebuke Jesus and tell him that, no, 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 you, you, are, you are not to die. That's not going to happen. And Jesus is like, no, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Right? He rebukes him. Right? Or when he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, right? Peter was about it. Right? They came stepping up to the Lord. And he's like, nah, not my savior, not my king. And he, you know, pulls you know, John out his little sheath and, you know, uh, cuts the ear of the high priest. We learned that from John 18.10. Or also, famously, when he denied our Lord three times. He said he wouldn't deny him. And Jesus said you would. <laughs> and he did. Matthew 26, 69 through 75, right? So he's famously known for all these things, but he's also famously and uh, graciously known for being a faithful shepherd. For being a faithful shepherd who loves and teaches the flock. We learned that from 1 Peter 5 that we'll get to uh, in weeks ahead. We also learned that from John 21, 13 through 17. It's with that background on who the author is that we now move to the recipient of this letter, which will be more longer, right? Again, his audience is Christians who are suffering, as we'll dive into now. So that's point one, uh, it's from. Number two is to, T-O, okay? Look back with me, at, starting at verse 1b. It says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Before I dive into this one, I see, are folks hot? I can turn on these fans really quick. It seems like folks are hot. Let me turn this on. Little baby too. Sorry. All right. Good. A little round of applause. I know it's getting a little toasty. All right. All right. <laughs> and I know a little toasty might, might cause some nodding of head. So, so we don't want none of that. <laughs> Get a little hot, sweaty. Don't want nobody passing out. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. So, again, let me read, let me read this again. Uh, point number two, two, T-O. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. All right. Here's now where we're going to walk through some of these subpoints as you see. And those subpoints, as you'll see on the screen, go like this. Uh, number one, chosen. Number two, foreknown by God. Number three, sanctified by the Spirit. And number four, obedience to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. And this is directly from the text, as you see. Right? So let's look at the uh, first sub point. And that's number one, chosen. Chosen. Okay. Peter is writing to elect exiles of different provinces. Right. So these provinces, as one commentator, commentator puts it, that these are regions within the Roman Empire that are now modern day Turkey. All right. So these are the, the regions uh, that are now considered modern day Turkey. And that word elect is what we know from Scripture's teaching on election. OK, so biblical election or God's choosing of those unto salvation. So we can't get away from it. We can't get around it. This is something that we don't want to get around. It's, it's, it's good. It's good teaching. Good doctrine is that. God chooses those whom he saves. God chooses those whom he saves. We find this teaching of election in the Old Testament and also the New Testament, right? So in the Old Testament, we see God's sovereign election of Israel, the people of Israel, right? Uh, listen to Deuteronomy 7, 6 and write this down. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you. To be a people for his treasured possession. 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Right? This is the same passage that Peter here, uh, later on in the book in chapter 2, he kind of retweets this. He kind of looks back and takes that and applies it here in 1 Peter 2, 9, which is a familiar verse. It says what? 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay? few more passages that I would encourage you to, to peep on your own, write these down, just to dig a little more deeper into election and seeing that in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 14, 2. Psalm 105, verse 43. And then Psalm 135, verse 4. So this truth about God choosing a people for himself is all throughout the scriptures. Okay? So we Look briefly here in the Old Testament, but it's all throughout the New Testament speaking to the church, right? Speaking to those who are a part of the church. Paul taught it. So the apostle Paul taught it. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He says there, he says, he writes to the uh, church at Thessalonica. He says, as for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you. To be among the first to experience salvation. A salvation that came through the spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. That's the NLT version, New Living Translation version. Okay. Peter taught it as we see in our text right now that we're studying. And even I referenced in 1 Peter 2.9. But then Jesus also taught it. Jesus also taught election. Okay. Listen to John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Listen to John 13, 18. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus here says he knows who is his. He knows who he has chosen. Right? So we, we hear it from Paul, we hear it from Peter, and we hear it from the Lord Jesus, who is God himself, teaching about biblical election. It's all throughout the Bible. God chose people. He chose those unto salvation. And Christians here in the room this afternoon, and Christians who have been gathering all throughout this day, God chose you. God chose me. And his choosing of you had nothing to do with you or me and everything to do with him. It had nothing to do with you or me, but it had everything to do with him. See, the doctrine of election, the teaching of election, of God choosing those unto salvation should humble you. It humbles me. It should humble us. You see, God choosing of people unto salvation isn't like the NBA draft or the NFL draft, right? Not, not, not when the scouts and when, you know, Adam Silver and others, you know what I'm saying, are like, oh, in the first pick in the NBA draft, we choose Allen Iverson or somebody. Yeah, I had to throw my little Allen Iverson in there. <laughs> Liz is in here, so I know she would give me. <laughs> but it, it, it's not like that, Right? Uh, none of us were chosen for Team God because we're the more talented or the more gifted or had anything good in us that God would choose us. Him choosing you didn't have anything to do with you, beloved. It had everything to do with him. There was absolutely nothing in us that would qualify us to even sit on the bench or to even practice. Nothing in you or me. We were never worthy of being a part of God's family. God chose us out of, guess what, y'all? Sheer mercy. Sheer mercy. His mercy. Right? That should humble us, family. Christians in the room, that should humble you to know that it wasn't based on anything that you did. Or anything that God saw in you or me, 
There is nothing in you or me that would make him be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to choose them because of this. No, it wasn't nothing. He chose you, chose me by sheer mercy. Mercy being us getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve God. Sheer mercy. Amen. Amen. Looking back at the text, not only did God choose people, but he chose exiles. Right. You see that in the text where it says elect exiles. Right. That word is the same word in the in other Bible translations like for foreigner. Like for foreigner. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that word is the same word, like in other Bible translations, like for foreigners, someone whose home is not here. Okay, someone whose home is not here. They don't have citizenship here. All right, those elect saints were were scattered again because of persecution and because of suffering. Uh, And this is true of all saints today. This is true of you, saints, Christians. This is not your home. This is not your home. This is not my home. As someone has said, famously said, you and I are to be living out of our suitcases. We're to be living out of our suitcases, meaning Jesus has a place for you. He has a place for me. And it's not here. It's with him in heaven. With him in heaven. Listen to John 14, 2 through 4. It says, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus has a place for you. And for me, and it's not here. And we are to not be comfortable living here. Yeah, we want to be faithful. We want to honor the Lord with our dealings here. But if any of us are getting too comfortable here, and we're not preparing, and we're not expectant that one day, as the scripture teaches, that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, we need to be ready. Need to be ready and eager, trusting that that day could be today. That day could be tomorrow. Are you ready? Or are you comfortable here? It's going to be better with Him. Let's not get too comfortable. We are to be living out of our suitcases. Amen? Amen. Christians who heard these reminders of who they were in Peter's day were given hope. They were given hope. Remember, once again, context, they're they're suffering. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're struggling. They have trials. Their necks are on the line. Any given moment, they could be killed. So they're suffering and they're scattered. And what encouraged them in their suffering and displacement was a reminder of who they are, Christians, and whose they are, Christ. And the same is true for you this afternoon, Christian. In your sufferings, in your trials, in your challenges, you may forget who you are and whose you are. But Peter lets Christians know then and now today, they and you and me are Christians. And we are Christ's. We are his, his possession. You are a child of God if you know Jesus. And you are God's prized possession. When you remember this in your sufferings, in your trials, in your challenges, you're reminded that Christians are not exempt either. I mean, these Christians were suffering. Christians today are not exempt from suffering. We are not exempt from going through hard times. It's 
been true of Christians all throughout the history of Christianity. It's true of us today. So we're reminded that it's not exempt, that we're not exempt, that we don't get a pass from trials or hardships. In fact, we follow in the steps of our Lord who also suffered. Listen to 1 Peter 2.21. We'll get there in some, some weeks. But listen to 1 Peter 2.21. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So, as Christians, we've been called to him. And because he suffered for us, him leaving us an example, we are to follow in his steps. We will follow into his steps if we are Christians. We will follow in his steps. We will experience persecutions, challenges. And in light of that, we're reminded, family, that we are his. We are his once again. And because we are his, when we go through those different challenges or trials, or circumstances, we're reminded that, man, God went through those things. The Lord Jesus, him being God, went through the same things, and worse, actually. And that when we go through those types of trials and tribulations, that we don't go through them alone. We go through them with God. He didn't leave us. And we go through them with the church body. He didn't leave us alone. He provides himself, but then he also provides church body, church family to go through things together with. And this should give you hope. This should give you encouragement. This should also comfort you to be reminded that you are his and that he has you, that God has you in the middle of your hardship. That he has you. That he's been having you. And that he will continue to have you. Listen to 1 Peter 2.10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's you. That's me, Christian. We were once not God's people, but now we are God's people. We were once not recipients of mercy, but now we have received mercy. And because we have received mercy and because we have God, when we go through hard trials, I'm not saying it doesn't make it. I'm not saying it's easy. I know from what our body has experienced and what we've experienced as a family it's hard. It hurts. And I don't think God is negating that either. God is a God who feels. And he wants us to feel. So I'm not negating any of that. But when we go through these different things, to be reminded that, Christian, you are not alone. It's comforting. It's encouraging. And it helps you get through it as we continue to keep our eyes on Christ who modeled for us suffering and who invites us in to suffering. Amen. Y'all with me? Okay. I heard a couple of okay. Amen. All right. Amen. Well, look, that's that's number one. Chosen. Number two. Foreknown by God. Foreknown by God the Father. Look back with me in verse 2. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So Christians are chosen by God. And now as we see, foreknown by God. Okay? This is, if you will, the cousin of election, if you will. Uh, The two are closely tied together. It's another angle of God's glorious choosing of some unto salvation. This does not mean that God being all-knowing, and he is all-knowing, That when he created the world and human beings, that he looked into the future and saw all those who would believe the gospel and those who wouldn't. 
That, that's not what foreknowledge means. That's not what foreknown means. And then in light of him uh, looking into the future and seeing those who would believe the gospel and those who wouldn't, he then chose all those he knew would choose to believe and guarantee their salvation. That's not foreknowledge. That's not true. That's, that's actually false. Okay? This type of thinking does three things according to one commentator. Here's, here's the three, three things quickly. It makes people sovereign in their salvation and not God. When you think about God looking into the future, seeing all those who would believe the gospel and those who wouldn't, and then choosing them on account of him seeing people in the future and those who would believe and wouldn't, it makes people sovereign in their salvation and not God. Jesus made his sovereignty. And so when I say sovereignty, I'm, I'm meaning God's providence. I'm meaning God being in complete control over the entire salvation experience. Okay. Uh, Jesus made his sovereignty and God the Father's sovereignty clear when he says this in John 15, 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You are not sovereign in salvation. I'm not sovereign in salvation. None of us could choose God. God chose us. Amen? Number two, it gives credit for our own salvation. It gives us credit for our own salvation. But Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 completely kills that noise. Completely destroys any credit that we would even try to give ourselves in salvation. Listen to it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doom. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. We don't get any credit. Only God gets all the credit. Number three, it makes it seem as if that fallen people can seek after God. Fallen and sinful people can seek after God. It makes it seem that before those of us who knew Christ, or if you don't know Christ, it, it, it will make it seem that you in your sinful state can seek after God. And you can't. Romans 3.11 is clear when it says no one seeks after God. No, not one. Ephesians 2.1 says we're all spiritually dead. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we're all spiritually dead until God breathes life on our dead souls. God has to breathe life. And God did do that if you're a Christian. That, I mean, you just even really quickly, you just, you just even imagine if there was a dead corpse right here sitting in front of us. Thanks be to God, it's not. <laughs> but if there was a dead corpse sitting in front of us, it doesn't matter how much I yelled. doesn't matter how much I screamed. doesn't matter how much I talked. doesn't matter how much anything I did to wake that person up. They would not wake up. They would not wake up. In a spiritual sense. This is what the Bible is saying about you, Christian, and me. And for those of us who may not know him, is that we were all spiritually dead. Meaning that we could not respond to God in our own sin. But it took God responding to us, responding to our sin, and giving us the gift of faith and the gift of repentance and him allowing us to respond. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. Again, as we've been looking at so far, this is biblical election. This is what God has done in choosing some unto salvation. And giving those of us who know him eyes of faith, ears to hear, hearts to believe. This is only what God can do. It's a supernatural thing. So then foreknowledge, biblically and correctly defined, as one commentator puts it, is God's eternal, predetermined, loving, and saving intention. This is what foreknowledge is. Again, God's eternal, right? Before the foundations of the world, 
pre-planned, predetermined, loving and saving intention. Okay? To put it another way, as another commentator says, it well, he says, therefore, foreknowledge involves God's predetermining to have a relationship with some individuals based on his eternal plan. Based on his eternal plan. A simpler way that I would break all that down would say God chose you because he pre-planned before the world to have a relationship with you, Christian. God chose you, Christians, in the room because he pre-planned before the foundations of the world. Before anything existed. To have a relationship with you, Christians. Let that sink in for a second. Just think about that. Let that sink in. Not based on anything that you did. You weren't born yet. You couldn't do anything. You didn't perform a work. You you couldn't show up and say, God, look what I can do. Choose me, choose me, choose me. Look what I can do. No. God chose you based on his eternal plan. It was pre-planned. One personal example, really quick and briefly, is that I remember when the Lord saved me. So the Lord saved me in the summer of 2007. And I was just being, man, just I was, I was just eating up all these Christian truths, right? Loving it, enjoying it. And uh, I hadn't quite come into an understanding of biblical election yet, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't have a category for that. And I remember one of the brothers who was discipling me started showing me scriptures and telling me from the scriptures, like, yeah, like God elects people. He chooses people. And I looked at that. I was like, no, 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 no. What, what are you talking about? I was confronting him. I was combating him. I was trying to find verses to, to, to combat it. And all of that. We, we basically were arguing. I was, well, I was arguing. <laughs> I was arguing with him. And I was like, no, no, no. This can't be so. This isn't the God that saved me. What do you mean he chooses? You, he chose me and what about this person or what about that person? You know, you just start thinking about all these different things, right? And I remember him telling me, he was like, yo, just, you know, just study the Bible, pray about it. Let's keep, let's keep conversing about it, right? Keep talking about it. And I did. I started just praying about it. Like, Lord, if this is true, if this is what the Bible teaches about biblical election, humble my heart. I want to believe it. I want to obey you. And I literally, I kid you not, I literally remember opening up my Bible and it was almost as if God just literally just made it poke up out of the scriptures. It's like I remember going to Matthew one twenty one, and it talks about how, you know, when Jesus is born, that he will save his people from their sins. That's where it started for me. Looking at Matthew one twenty one, where it was like, Jesus will save his people. I read that a bunch of times. But in that moment, his people just stood out for me. And as I continued to just read through the scriptures, I just started seeing it everywhere. I just started seeing it everywhere that God chose people for himself. That no one chose him. God chose people. And he began to soften my heart. And he began to help me to understand and love this beautiful truth in Scripture. It's a beautiful truth when you think about it. That God chooses people unto himself. Maybe that's you this afternoon. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have heard about this teaching. Maybe you wrestle with this teaching. I encourage you, like my friend did years ago, study the Scriptures. Pray about it. Seek the Lord. And ask him to reveal his truth to you. And he will. By his grace. Moving on to the next one. Number three. Sanctified by the spirit. Sanctified by the spirit. Look at uh, verse 2b. It says. In the sanctification of the spirit. So the word sanctified here means. To be set apart from the world. Right. To, To be set apart from the world. To holiness Excuse me. To holiness in God. Okay. 
It's the idea where we see later in chapter 1, verse 15. So 1 Peter 1, 15, uh, where we, we see Peter expounding a bit more. It says here, it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So it's this idea that, that we are, as Christians, we are to look different from the world. That we have been saved from unholiness to holiness with God in him. Or in 1 Peter 2, 9, to reference this again, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see this? You see this here that... that you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a holy people. A people for his own possession, right? And that he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ephesians 5 says that for those of us who are Christians, at one time we were darkness, now we are light. Right? We were once, that was who we were. We were darkness. Now we're light in the Lord. Christian, you were made holy by the Spirit, and you are continuously being made holy by the Spirit. Right? This is the process of sanctification. So what we call sanctification, right? Is that 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 we are continuously being sanctified. We are continuously, so positionally, we have been made holy. We've been declared righteous as Christians. Okay, that's done. If you're a Christian, that's final. That isn't, nothing will change your status. But on a daily basis, God is continuously making us holy. He's continuously conforming us to the image of his son. All right? Our patterns of sin, at one point when we were maybe uh, younger in the faith, or it depends, we, we may have been apt to sin in ways more easily, more regularly, but there should be a decrease as you continue to journey with the Lord, as you continue to grow in holiness, as you continue to believe the gospel, as you continue to confess sin and repent of sin and do that in community. There should be a decrease of that, right? A decrease. I didn't say it's gone. It won't be gone until we go with the Lord or he comes back. But there should be a decrease in your sin pattern. That makes sense? This is what the Bible calls sanctification. Okay? So you and I are being sanctified. None of us have arrived. None of us, none of us has it all together. We don't. We are all still sinful. And we still struggle with sin. But as I said... Our status before God is one of forgiven as a Christian. You have been forgiven. And he keeps on forgiving. And he keeps on cleansing. And he keeps on making us more like Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. That God is not done with you or me. And he continues to make us more and more. Just like chipping away, right? Think about like a sculpture or something, right? Just chipping away, refining it, making it more presentable before him. And he is fulfilling this promise in every Christian, every day. I love this passage, right? I love this verse, Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, this is the apostle Paul. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is sanctification. That Jesus is not done with you yet. He's not done with me yet. And he'll never be done with us as Christians. But that he began a good work. He will continue that work. Sustain that work. And he will bring it to completion on the day when he returns. When we are with him. Last one. Obedience to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. Look back with me. At verse 2c, it says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So, so when someone is saved by Jesus, 
He becomes their savior. Okay? He becomes their savior. He becomes our savior. He, we couldn't save ourselves. Jesus had to save us. Okay? But he also becomes your Lord. He becomes our savior and Lord. Okay? And when he becomes our Lord, it means that he has a rule and a reign on our lives and we don't. We once thought we ran the show in the world, right? We were doing our thing, moving, cooling, all that. And we did whatever we wanted when we pleased. Not as Christians. We, we, we still have freedom in Christ, but we move differently. And we move when the general says move. And the general being Jesus. Right? So this is what it means that he, he is Lord over our lives. Okay? And this idea here of him being Lord means we obey him. This is what the text says, right? Obedience to Jesus. So if he is your savior, that also means he's your Lord. And if he's your Lord, as your Lord, that means you obey him. Okay? One commentator says to obey Jesus Christ then is the equivalent of being saved. It's the equivalent of being saved. To not obey Jesus means you're not saved. To obey Jesus and to obey his commands because you love him, right? As Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience means you are a Christian. You are bearing fruit as a Christian. Okay? Now, as Christians, I want to be clear is that we don't, we, we, we don't obey him perfectly. Okay? It's not what I'm saying. We don't obey him perfectly, but obedience should be the pattern of our lives. It should be the pattern of our lives. There should be a pattern of obedience to Jesus. Evident, displaying in our lives. Okay? Let me, let me show you from a couple of passages. Listen to Romans 6, 17 through 18. The apostle Paul here. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Okay, you, you, you see this, that that you were once slaves of sin. And, and, and you were once obedient to your sin. But since becoming a Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And you want to obey the righteous one. Okay? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to do what? Obey Christ. Obey Christ. So obedience to Jesus Christ is a mark of a Christian. So the question is, are you obeying Jesus? Am I obeying Jesus? To obey him means you follow him, right? This is, this is as I know most of us know this, a lot of us know this, this is basic and essential Christianity here, right? Think about Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and do what? Follow me, follow him. This is basic and essential Christianity, but we never outgrow the basics. We never outgrow the essentials. So is that us? Is that you? If so, then you are a Christian. Praise God. If not, you can become a Christian. You can become a Christian. Keep the last part of this verse that we're looking at in 1 Peter, right? It says, and for sprinkling with his blood. So for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter points us back to the Old Testament here where blood is sprinkled on the people of Israel. I know uh, it's a little interesting. This particular event, though, was, was crucial because what it did was affirm God's agreement. So his covenant. Right. This is the idea where we get covenants from. So God's covenant to reveal himself to his people and the blood sprinkled on them affirm their consent to obey. 
Okay? Let me show you from the scriptures, right? So, one of the things we would like to do here at CHCC is, is if I can't show you in the text, don't, don't take my word for it. I want you to see it in the Bible. Okay? So, listen to Exodus 24, 5 through 8. It says, this is a Moses. It says, and he, Moses, sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Okay? So they're sacrificing animals. Okay? And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, uh, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Okay? This is all about uh, blood sacrifice and, and, and um, them using animals to atone for sin. Okay? Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, this is the people now in response to all that Moses has done. Okay? It says, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Okay? Verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we see this connection here of of blood being sprinkled on the people and this being uh, God issuing his agreement with his people and in response to God's agreement with his people, the people obey. The people say, we will do whatever you say, Lord. We obey you. But thanks be to God that he provided a new and better way. Right? That we don't have to sacrifice animals here in 2022. Praise God. That we don't have to sacrifice animals and get blood sprinkled on us from the animals to affirm God's agreement, his covenant to us and our obedience to him. Right? Instead, he provided the sacrifice. A once and for all sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ, his son, who shed his blood for sinners like you and me, right? And when we believe upon him, his blood is sprinkled, or in another way, covers us, covers all our sin, and grants us forgiveness and obedience to him. Amen? This is the good news of the gospel. This is the best news that any of us could ever hear. And we've heard it, and we need to continue to hear it. And it's the best news that we'll ever, ever continue to hear. And this is the gospel. So if you are here and you are not a Christian, I know, and for even the Christians in the room, I know we've been swimming in in, in deep waters of doctrine and teaching, which is good and necessary. And will be truths from Scripture that if you're here and you're not a Christian uh, and you become a Christian, that you'll grow in. That you'll learn. That you'll study. But your first step would be to believe upon Jesus for salvation. Your first step would be to become a Christian. And how you do that is that you have to agree with God and his word. That you are a sinner. That you were created by God in his image. After his likeness. But that you are fallen. That we are all fallen. And we live in a fallen world. And that you may not admit this, but you actually love your sin. The Bible actually tells us that we loved our sin, right? And hated Jesus. That we loved the darkness and hated the light, John 3. You love your, you love your sin. You love opposing God. And because you oppose God, you are an enemy of God. And because you are an enemy of God, He will judge you. If he were to judge you in your sin, if you were to go before him, he were to judge you before him in your sin, he will judge you swiftly and rightly, and he will cast you away from himself into eternal separation from him. In hell, where you'll never have a chance to respond to him, and believe upon him. But the mercy of God, as you've been hearing all throughout this sermon, the mercy of God is this. The grace of God is this, is that God 
could have left you and me where we were. But he didn't. He sent Jesus, his son, to live a life that you and I could never live and to die a death on the cross that you and I deserved. Right. Because it was our sin that got Jesus nailed on the cross. He had no sin for which he had to die for. So he dies the death that we deserve. He is buried. He is raised from the dead on the third day, offering hope, offering life to all who would turn from their sin and turn to Jesus by faith, by belief. And the Bible says to you non-Christian, if you do that today, you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven of all your sin. The scriptures that we've been reading about, like, like thinking about 1 Corinthians 6, where it says, and you were once, that would be true of you. You were once this, but you've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been sanctified. That can be you. It can be your testimony. And so we want that for you this afternoon. So we implore you, non-Christian, if you do not know Jesus, be reconciled to God. He welcomes you open arms this afternoon. Come to him. Believe upon him. Trust in him. You would like to learn more about what that means, what that looks like? It would be my joy to talk with you. You might join to talk with you after the service about what that means, what that looks like, or any other Christians in the room. They would love to holler at you about that. And lastly, as we're about to close, look with me at the last part of the greeting. First Peter 1, 2, D. It says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter here ends with the sweetest and encouraging words to start the letter, Right? He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay? The word grace here means unmerited favor. Or as others have coined it or have used the acronym for it, it says, God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay? What this means then, excuse me, what this means then is we can't earn it, but it's freely given to us. This is something you can't earn. You can't earn God's grace. But instead, it's freely given to you, not on the basis of you, but on the basis of Jesus, right? And then peace here is the peace that God has provided through his son. Sinners have beef with God, but Jesus comes to squash the beef, to provide peace. It's in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's, there's peace that God has, has granted you through the Lord Jesus. And at the same time, it's that type of peace that God provides that surpasses all understanding. Right? Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What Peter is doing essentially here, he is saying, may God's grace and his peace be given to you more and more. May it be multiplied to you. May you experience his grace and his peace more and more and more and more and more. This is essentially what Peter is saying. All right, family, when you hear all of the ground we just covered in just two verses, just two verses, you see that Peter reminded that Reminded the suffering saints here of their hope in God. Think about what he's been doing, right? Again, the context is that these are Christians who are suffering, who, who are heading towards potentially being killed, right, for their faith. I mean, Peter was killed. All of the apostles persecuted, killed for their faith. When you think about that and all of what we've been covering here, he reminds these suffering saints that their hope is to be found in God. And as I said at the top of the sermon, and I'll say it again, I pray for those of us who are suffering right now. We may not be on the verge 
of being persecuted like the saints then and, and, and being, yeah, being killed for our faith. I have to say that couldn't happen. But our brothers and sisters across the world, they experience that on a daily basis. Where they are literally being killed for opening up their Bibles. So it is still happening. It just hasn't hit America yet. Has it hit America in the way that, yeah. You know? But we do experience suffering in ways like health problems. Right? There's been some, some health challenges that folks in our body, little babies in our body, have been experiencing. Family members of ours who have been experiencing. We've been grieving the loss of loved ones and friends. Struggles in marriages, struggles in parenting, struggles with parenting children who uh, are starting to go in a different direction than you, that you wouldn't have hoped, right? Or don't desire money issues, and the list can go on and on and on and on, right? We all experience suffering or trials or tribulations or challenges in different ways on so many levels. But what I want to end here and what I started with is that and what I believe Peter is starting here with is that there is hope. There is hope. And there is hope in Jesus for every area of your life in every circumstance. Again, Peter reminds these suffering Christians of who they are. They are elect exiles. That they are Christians chosen by God. So it reminds them of who they are and whose they are in the midst of their suffering. And for us, as a body, in our suffering, in our trials, we need to be reminded, as I've said already before in the sermon, of who we are and whose we are in the midst of every trial, every circumstance. There's so much more that can be said. But let me say one last thing. One last thing. Sometimes in our suffering, sometimes in our trials, in our challenges, we may think that we're the only ones suffering. It can, it can, it can easily come, right? When you're just in, in the middle of what you're going through and you can't, you, you're in it, you can't look out of it and see others around you that might be going through different things too. You're, you're in it, and it could be overwhelming and burdensome, and I'm not negating any of that at all. But the reality of it is, and what I want to encourage us all to be reminded of, is that we are not the only ones suffering when we're suffering. That we're all suffering. Or, or either we, as, as folks have said, you're either, you're either going into suffering or coming out of suffering. <laughs> right? That, that's the way of the Christian. <laughs> like you're either coming out of it or you're about to go into it. That's the way of the Christian. And so I just want to remind us that, that if, if any of us thinks that way, that, that that's not true. Okay? We even tend to, to be tempted to isolate ourselves when we are going through different trials or challenges. And then we try to deal with them alone. But that's not what God wants for you. That might be what Satan wants for you. That's not what God wants for you. Let me, let me show you in the scriptures. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Right? He says here, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith. Here's, the, here's, what, I'm, here's what I'm harping on. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When we are suffering, we are going through trials. Yes, we are going through them and they are hard. There is still hope. But you and I are not the only ones who are going through what we are experiencing. There are others who are going through similar things as well. 
And the temptation is to not notice others or to then isolate yourself. But again, from God's word here, we're reminded that we are to be sober-minded, that we are to be watchful, that the enemy, and there is an enemy who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's seeking to devour isolated people. When you are isolated in your suffering, it's already hard enough that you're feeling the weight of suffering and everything that's going on that's coming your way. And then you're by yourself. You're alone. That gives the enemy more room to do what he tries to do. But we are reminded here and challenged here that the Bible says, resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood and sisterhood all throughout the world. I'm done, family. Last thing, know that in your struggles, God is always with you. Christian, and know that he has provided a church body who struggles, who also struggles, and that we all struggle together and point one another to Jesus. You don't have to be alone in your struggles. You don't have to struggle alone. Let's pray as the team comes back up. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Um, Lord, I pray um, as we have just, man, in just two verses, walked through a lot. We covered a lot of ground. God, I pray that overarching the main theme has touched down in all of our hearts. That in the midst of our suffering, our trials, our challenges, we are reminded from Peter of who we are, Christians, who are not exempt from suffering, but who are yours in the midst of our suffering. Help us, Lord, in all the ways that we've been experiencing previously or now or will in the future. And help us, Lord, as the theme of this sermon series is to suffer well. Help us to suffer well, looking to the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, who was the model of suffering and who um, showed us the way of suffering and who, um, yeah, Lord, leaves an example for us as we suffer. Help us to suffer well, looking to him, not suffering in our own strength, but suffering in the strength that Jesus provides. And help us to know that we always have hope. That there's never a point in time where we are without hope, even if we may feel like it. We are never without hope. There's always hope in the Lord Jesus. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.